So it's been a good week overall, you guys? Other than Alvaro's stomach bug? Other than Alvaro's stomach bug, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, I hadn't felt that bad in, in years, really. But I'm, I'm good now, so. Alvaro doesn't want to dwell on his illness on air, right? It can get too graphic for regular <laughs> listeners, so let's, let's stay away from that. I think so, yeah. This is, this is yeah. a PG-13 podcast. We'll keep it that way. <laughs> Maybe when we reach, you know, our 100th episode or so. Then we just change the rating, become R-rated? Yeah, of course. We have to, we have to make it challenging. The unrated version of Candid. So here's something that's confusing. Uh, I think this is, is confusing not just to me, but presumably to a lot of people who are shopping for cameras. And it, I'm talking about the way that um, sensor size relates to image quality. And I know that when you're shopping for a camera, generally you tend to look at things like, okay, how many megapixels does it have? How big is the camera? Blah, blah, blah. But you often hear people also um, giving a lot of importance to sensor size. So let's just open up this can of worms and see if we can figure out what it means, what it is, and how it actually affects pictures. So hopefully we can help people make better purchasing decisions. So Alvaro, I'm gonna to toss this to you. Um, what exactly is sensor size? Well, that's easy. Thank, thank, thanks for the question. <laughs> no, really, this, this is a, a can of worms that I'm, uh, we were all hesitant to open because it can get pretty technical and we're just not sure. Uh, it's that interesting, you know, as a topic of discussion to spend uh, one hour talking about on a, on, a, on a photography show. This is admittedly not the easiest thing to talk about, but we're going we're gonna to do our best. So here it goes. Um, the, the, the main point to discuss here, I think, is how sensor size affects image quality, because there are a lot of technical concerns and technical aspects that go into it. But at the end of the day, what people care about, and rightly so, is the end result, how their pictures are affected by the different sensor sizes and what uh, whether it makes sense to spend more on a camera that has a bigger, better sensor by whatever metric, and how much more is, is it okay to spend, you know, in relationship to the improvement that you can expect to get uh, from that better sensor. Right. So if you frame it in terms of, you know, a rational consumer that is not biased against or for any particular technology or manufacturer or whatever, uh, at the end of the day, it all boils down to physics, really. Sensor size uh, affects several aspects of an image, uh, namely the uh, light gathering ability of the camera and depth of field. Uh, and all those uh, aspects uh, have a net impact on the way your pictures look, right? And there are equivalences among different systems. Uh, you can take the exact same picture with different, uh, different sensor sizes by varying other parameters. And of course, you're going to run into certain limitations once you start doing this, because physics can only get you to a certain point in terms of speed, lens speed, for example. Uh, but in general, for most types of photography, you can get com comparable results with different uh, systems. You just have to know what you have to tweak or how you, how you need to uh, operate your camera to get the results you're after. Right. 
So realistically, in a in a digital context these days, we're talking about. Um, I think it's safe to say we're talking about mainly three sensor size options um, or, or or categories. So you've got your quote unquote full frame sensors, which are uh, basically the the equivalent to thirty five millimeter film uh, as far as size, and then smaller than that, you have the APS C. Um, and this one is a little nebulous because different manufacturers have slightly different interpretations of what that size class is. So it's not like it's exactly the same, but generally speaking, it's it's one size down from full frame. And then you come down from that and you get into um, the micro four thirds sensor size, which is um, again, a little bit smaller. And obviously underneath that you is where you find all of your uh, smartphone sensors and compact camera sensors. And they're all, all sorts of obscure, tiny little sizes. Um, so that's kind of the landscape, I think. Um, and it, why do we like, I've always wondered this, but why do we always measure in full frame terms? Like, you know, full frame is the biggest standard of the three you just talked about. Um, but like there's a medium format sensor size out there, right? That is just gigantic in comparison and, you know, both in, in, um, size of the sensor as well as the price tag, correct? Yeah. I mean, medium format is a whole other planet and large format beyond that. Um, I think generally for, for most people who are buying camera systems, they're not even looking in that direction because, um, the, the costs jump way up and the, um, the ways that those formats uh, or, or the advantages that they confer are usually lost on the kinds of people who are trying to actually use their camera outside of a studio setting. Um, that's one of the, the notorious problems with larger format cameras um, in general is that they are really big systems. So they're not very practical for taking around with you um, if you're traveling or even just like in a in an outdoor shoot kind of scenario. It's like if you don't have a tripod, if you don't have uh, you know a controlled shooting uh zone it's it's really not as practical i just pop, popped in medium format into henry's the online um it's an online camera store for canadians at least specifically do they have any american stores by the way uh henry's i think i think they might i'm not really sure i mean they'd have to compete with bnh and all those big guys down there so i don't know if they could yeah right right oh anyway i pop in medium format and it's like fifty thousand dollars for a camera body yeah because those it's uh Hasselblad and those guys that are just ridiculous and, and aimed squarely at super high-end professionals, right? Like, so full frame then is just kind of the standard that we've kind of all agreed upon, unwritten rule, rule of thumb, so to say. Right. I mean, going back to to your original question, it's a matter of terminology, basically. And uh, since you have systems with different uh, specs and different parameters, but there's uh, a relationship that links them all together. We need a, a, a frame of reference so that we know what we're talking about. If you say simply that you have a 25 millimeter lens, but you don't specify the format, uh, there's no way for the person who's talking to you to understand exactly what you mean. So it, it all comes down to needing a frame of reference. As for why full frame in particular, I think it just comes from the film era, because that was the uh, the, the most popular by far of all the formats. I mean, yes, there was medium format and even large format and they're still are they they're still around. But in terms of what people knew and what people used, it was all 35 millimeter, what we what we today call full frame. And it's it's all uh, also from a teaching perspective. Uh, Think right. about if you're learning photography in a formal environment uh, in a 
university or, or in, a, in a course or whatever, you need uh, a, you know, consistent terminology to teach certain concepts, concepts. And any person that's learned photography in the past 30 years or even more, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, except the past five to 10 years, the history of photography has been all about, uh, you know, film and the standard 35 millimeter format. And that's the terminology that's used in, in formal scenarios to teach, you know, about technique, about composition, about everything about photography, really. So to me, it's not surprising that's evolved in this way. So I think a lot of people take this for granted, perhaps, at least I do. But do you guys care to get into those? Like you talked about them being equivalences. So 25 millimeter format in, let's say, an APS-C format. Sorry, a 25 millimeter focal length in an APS-C format. How do we compare that? What is there like a mathematical formula to, that goes through that? Or in case listeners don't understand. Right. That's For that, to understand that, you need to, to talk about what is called the crop factor. The crop factor is the uh, the numeric factor that links that links that explains the relationship between different systems, right? For example, in the case of APS-C that you mentioned, uh, the crop factor is for almost every manufacturer is 1.5, except for Canon that uses uh, 1.6, I believe. So what you get from that is if you have a 25 millimeter lens in APS-C format, if you multiply that. Uh, by the crop factor, you get the focal length in terms of full frame, what the equivalent focal length, what we call the equivalent focal length, basically. It's uh, it's worth because uh, this is this is where the discussion gets a little hairy. If you've ever seen uh, articles like this online, um, inevitably someone will pop up and will make the point that actually what we're talking about. Uh, when we talk about equivalence is field of view rather than focal length, because a 100 millimeter lens is a 100 millimeter lens, regardless of system, regardless of crop factor, that just stays constant. What we're really discussing is the relative field of view. In other words, what are you actually seeing when you look through the viewfinder? And that is what what changes. And this is why it gets kind of confusing um, because often these articles will use field of view and focal length interchangeably when they're discussing equivalence like this, but that's not really what's going on. It's it's kind of a pedantic thing. It's It's a matter of semantics rather than anything else but it's it's worth understanding because it's it's it affects um your understanding of what else is changed between a 100 millimeter lens for the micro four thirds system for instance versus uh the full frame system right and you're absolutely right to mention that because uh when you talk about focal length it's a physical property of the lens it's uh, i i'm not exactly sure of how it's defined but i think it's uh, the diameter of the lens in relationship to its length or something like that, but it's a physical parameter and that's why uh, focal length always remains constant regardless of the system. But field of view changes and that's exactly what happens when you use a lens that was designed for a full frame system on a crop sensor uh, camera, like APS-C for example, you get a different field of view even though the lens is exactly the same. So that's kind of how it works because what you're talking about really is the area of the lens uh, that, that projects the image onto the sensor, the sensor being smaller, uh, catches a smaller part of the, of the surface of the lens. And that's why you get a narrower field of view when using the same lens. But this doesn't apply to aperture, though, does it? Just to add insult to injury to this whole mathematical stuff. 
Right, because aperture, when when you when you talk about aperture, what you're talking about is the amount of light that that is needed to create an image that is correctly exposed, and the amount of light uh, is measured in terms of the aperture of the lens and the time that the lens is uh, open. The lens has a diaphragm that opens and shuts, uh, you know, and that that the time that the diaphragm is open is controlled by the camera and that's the parameter that we call shutter speed. So basically what you have is uh, this aperture combined with this time gets you a total amount of light that is projected onto the sensor. And that amount of light to create the same image is exactly the same regardless of the sensor size because the lens will project the light onto a bigger surface but the time that it needs to stay open is exactly the same. So that's why aperture is sort of the exception in that it doesn't get uh, affected by this crop factor thing. Uh, an f1.8 lens in micro four thirds, for example, is exactly the same speed as, a, as a, an f1.8 lens on a full frame system. And we, the crop factor there with micro four thirds, just to clarify, is two, correct? 2.0? Yeah, two. Exactly. So a 25 millimeter micro four thirds lens behaves or has an equivalent field of view as what you would get from a 50 millimeter full frame lens. So let's bring this down to earth here, because this is now we're talking about specific. Yeah, we're getting lost a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but now we're talking about specific consequences of choosing one sensor size over another, which is ultimately what we what we want to clarify here. So let's say that I am deciding between camera systems and my options are, you know, I could get a full frame DSLR or a full frame mirrorless system like uh, the, the Sony one that you guys use, or I can go with a micro four thirds system. And there are a few concrete things that sensor size tends to affect. One of them is the size of the body of the camera and the size of the lenses. Um, and this is this is kind of, um, it makes sense when you think about it because obviously as your sensor size grows, your lens needs to be larger so that it can project an image onto the full surface area of that sensor. So to a point, there's a limit to how small you can make a full frame lens just because you need it ultimately to be able to project the image onto a full frame sensor. Whereas if you're talking micro four thirds, the sensor itself is smaller, so you can get away with making the lens smaller. So that's one factor is, is the sheer physical size of the devices themselves. Um, but another one is, and, and one of the ones that I think most people um, take as, as important is the, the way that these lenses render depth of field. Um, and this is, again, what Alvaro was just explaining with aperture. This is where it tends to get kind of confusing to understand. Um, but these days, I, th I think it's probably safe to claim that for any given image, you can achieve it on any system, provided you have the right combination of lenses and provided you understand that it's not going to be using the exact same settings um, on both systems. Right. There's a limit to how far you can stretch that equivalency, of course, because if you're a full-frame shooter, which is who who is uh, used to shooting with really fast glass, like for example the Canon 85mm f1.2 lens, that lens is super super fast, uh, and to match what that lens would render in terms of depth of field with a micro four thirds camera, you would need a lens with a 0 0.6 speed which is unheard of uh, because making a lens that fast would be physically not impossible, but certainly not practical. It would need to be a huge lens and it would be 
almost unusable right. on a Micro Four Thirds camera. So there's a certain amount of wiggle room. And like you like you were saying, Marius, it's true that for most cases, for most reasonable cases, the equivalency is usually completely valid and completely acceptable. Uh, but just be aware that if your needs are sort of on the extreme ends of the of what is currently possible with either system, there might not be a natural equivalent or a readily available one. So you have to keep that in mind. Yeah, and there are there are definitely contexts where that's true, and and that's one of them. Another one might be for astrophotography. Um, but I, I feel like if you are if you're doing photography in that realm, you probably have a good sense of what your needs are and which systems can meet them and which ones can't. And and in some cases, it, it's a limitation of, well, someone's not made that lens yet rather than it would be impossible. Because like you said, it's just, it becomes very difficult um, for those fringe cases. But I'm trying to, you know, constrain this within uh, a practical reality that applies to most shooting scenarios where I feel like the difference between um, image potential let's say that you get between the various sensor sizes is exaggerated in in common discussion i, I feel like people have a a reverence for full frame sensors that is not as justified these days as it used to be maybe so as an outsider looking in then i mean this is a little technical even for me but like it, it seems to me like this is kind of there's there's trade-offs here you know on the full frame side you get the extra depth of field um you would you get more uh, yeah the depth of field is the biggest one there um, but you also get bigger camera sizes bigger lenses so on the micro four thirds side you get smaller lenses but less depth of field so really this is a story of of trade offs yeah absolutely and you have to be aware of what kind of trade offs are going to be most beneficial to you uh, I don't think saying just out of context that full frame is better than micro four thirds is true I think it depends a whole lot on what you're going to be using it for. If you're a travel photographer, yeah, if you're a travel photographer who needs to have lots of different lenses uh, with him or with her at all times, then the ability to have a system that is a lot smaller and lighter will produce a much better uh, net result for you than the increased uh, image quality that you would get from a full-frame system, for example. Right. I, I can, I'll speak like personally on that. You know, Jacqueline and I are, are thinking about doing it, hopping on an airplane for early in the summer, heading over to Europe and spending two or three weeks out there. And I look at my current camera kit and I think, okay, I've got a, a Sony a7 II and two or three relatively large in comparison to micro four thirds lenses. I've got three lenses that are quite large and I'm gonna take those and travel with them. But we've had trips in the past where I've had micro four thirds equipment and you can get you know, three zoom lenses that have all of the doodads and, and trinkets and so on um, from Olympus and they're all smaller and you know, they're, they're ideal for traveling. So I, I couldn't agree more that it, this we're, we're talking about, um, it really comes down to like what niche you find yourself in which one is going to fit best. There really is no difference um, in terms of quality here. Right, and typically when you're on a trip, you're not looking for super shallow depth of field shots. You're, you're looking, if anything, for the opposite. You're looking to keep most of your frame uh, nicely in focus because you want to actually show where you are and what you're photographing, right? So in that case, the depth of field advantage that full frame has over micro four thirds becomes rather irrelevant. I would say. Right. So 
I think about the Olympus's, um, they're a micro four thirds manufacturer in case anybody doesn't know, but uh, they have three pro professional lenses that range. Um, one is a seven to 14 millimeter, which if you use that crop factor, you're looking at about a 14 to 28 millimeter lens, uh, full frame equivalent field of view. And then they've got a professional 12 to 40 millimeter, which equates to about a 24 to 80 millimeter lens. And then they've got a larger 40 to 150 millimeter lens, which is the equivalent of 80 to 300 millimeters. So like between three lenses, which are all far smaller on the micro four thirds system, you have you know, you cover focal lengths from the 14 millimeter lens or length, focal length all the way down to up to 300 millimeters, right? Right. And it's not, it's not just that you can get to cover those, uh, those focal lengths, but you can do it with exceptional image quality because these are pro grade lenses. Right. These are not your typical kit zooms because when you buy the camera, you have a choice to buy them uh, with a kit zoom that is usually will cover about the same focal range, but the optical quality will be substantially worse. So we're talking about high-end high end, high end uh, glass here. And because they're smaller, they're generally less expensive, right? Well, it's a combination. It's, it's because they're smaller, and, and it's also because they're easier to make. Because it's, uh, there are certain technical challenges that are associated with making uh, bigger lenses or lenses for bigger systems and, uh, while keeping the image quality you know, high. And uh, technically speaking, it's easier for manufacturers to make a fast lens that is still sharp, uh, you know, from corner to corner. It's easier to make such a lens for the micro four thirds system than it is to make it for the full frame system. So it's logical that it will be cheaper. You know, the, the micro four thirds lens would be cheaper. So like, I think a lot of this comes from the, the uh, there's a video released this past week, this past week, week before, either or, about one of the bigger YouTubers, uh, photography YouTubers, um, Kai, uh, what's his last name? Kai Man Wong, is that his name? Wong, yeah. There we yeah. go. Uh, with Digital Rev TV, he, um, they were talking about whether or not Micro Four Thirds as a system is doomed or if it's dead. And I just, as I was watching, I was thinking about all these different thoughts in my head about Kay. Um, what kind of limitations is he actually talking about? And is it truly doomed? Are there a lot of people who micro four thirds is actually the better choice because of, you know, all of these limitations or um, benefits of that format? Um, it's hard to hard to argue straight up that micro four thirds is is doomed as a sensor format. Yeah, that's that's a tough argument to make. I think I think the reason that um, that this has come up at all is because um, we recently saw the release of the Olympus Pen F, and we're still kind of waiting to see what the next EM1 flagship will look like. But um, as a whole, when you look at the Micro Four Thirds system, I think there's an impression that it's been progressing um, maybe a little more slowly than some of the other systems, or it's been progressing in a way that doesn't really um, demonstrate that it's like pushing towards the future. I mean, I think to me, the most exciting thing that we've seen in the micro four thirds realm recently is the, um, the quality of the sensor shifting technology that they've been, um, putting out now. Um, and it's what allows the EM5 Mark II to produce those large 40 or however many megapixel shots, even though the sensor itself is technically only a 16 megapixel sensor. And it does this by, you know, because the sensor itself, um, can be moved by the stabilization system, they've used that technology to actually allow it to be shifted over by a pixel or a half pixel um, in each direction. And then 
combine the various images taken um, to get this this high resolution shot. And I think that's a very exciting way of pushing beyond the raw limits of your sensor. But I still feel like the the reason we're seeing these articles and the reason this video came about is because there's a sense that the system is maybe stagnating comparatively. Uh, I'm not so sure that's the the main problem that they have. I'm a little more pessimistic than you guys, so bear with me. I'm gonna try to <laughs> try to make my case. Here we go. Uh, the problem the problem I see with the Micro Four Thirds system is a problem of positioning in the market. I think the two key advantages that Micro Four Thirds had uh, over the rest of the camera industry were size and weight for one, and especially price for the other. And those were true uh, a couple years ago, but they're becoming less and less true as you know, as, as time passes, especially the price one. I think uh, Olympus and Panasonic are mistakenly trying to capture the higher end of the market. They're trying to compete with the APS-C guys in terms of image quality, in terms of build quality and features. And I just, I'm just not sure that's where the future of Micro Four Thirds lie. I think when you start uh, pricing Micro Four Thirds cameras in the, I don't know, $1,500 range and possibly even $2,000, that wouldn't be totally insane for the M1 Mark II. I think you're in a territory that's pretty uncomfortable and I'm not sure there are enough enough technical merits to to make that price you know, reasonable. It's hard to argue on, on, on like, you talk, earlier you mentioned the, about depth of field and the thinness of a full frame format and the depth of uh, the thinness of depth of field in the for, full frame format. But on the far other end, the other extreme, um, with the gr the larger depth of field, do, you don't think there's any future uh, at the very expensive end or the professional end for Micro Four Thirds with large depth of field? Like my experience here recently with both the seven to fourteen millimeter. Um, pro lens from Olympus and that eight millimeter fisheye, like those lenses are incredible. And you put them onto a small little body and you take them to the top of the mountain, which I wasn't able to do, but like there is a professional and a, like, I can see how people would spend a lot of money to have that. Right. I'm not, I'm not knocking them off because the cameras aren't great. I'm just saying that if you have to spend that kind of money to have that sort of equipment, uh, how many people are going to choose to spend it on a micro four thirds camera instead of a on a on a you know bigger sensor system, I think the kind of user that would uh, be comfortable making that decision is not the mainstream user. I think the the volume sales that Olympus and Panasonic would need to keep their businesses healthy is not going to come from those users. It needs to come from you know mainstream consumers and average users because those are the the kind of shooters that are going to choose Micro Four Thirds, uh, you know, because of the size, because of the weight, and especially because of the price as well. And it, to me, the fact that they're trying to, I mean, it's natural. I, I understand the impulse. You also, you always want to, you know, make it look like you're evolving towards better and better IQ and towards a, a more professional system. So from a corporate point of view, I understand why they want to do this. I am just saying I'm not sure it's the right way forward. Uh, I mean, they can try to do it as long as they don't, you know, uh, abandon the more mainstream segment of the market because that would be a mistake um, as far as I'm concerned. 
And uh, regardless, regarding what you said about, uh, you know, um, I think it was uh, uh, the ability to have that greater depth of field. I take it you were you were referring to the ability to shoot wide open, uh, you know, in low light situations and so on. Is that what you mean? Um, well, that or yeah, uh, sure, fire away. Yeah, because uh, the problem with that, and that's true. That's a very that's a very uh, tangible advantage for Micro Four Thirds users in that, and I, I think we mentioned it uh, in a, on a previous episode that you get to shoot wide open in low light situations, and you still have a workable depth of field. You have uh, enough of your frame will be in focus that you can get a pretty decent image. Whereas if you had a bigger sensor and you shoot wide open, you have a depth of field that's so th- so shallow that the image is not going to be really that compelling. You're not going to be able to show what you intended to, to show. And your only alternative in that case is to raise the ISO to values that start being not really healthy. The problem with that, and that's a very real advantage today, like I said, but the problem with that is that technology is going to erase most of that advantage over time because as sensors get better and high ISO performance gets better, that's going to be less of a problem for full-frame shooters. And it's yet another uh, competitive advantage that Micro Four Thirds is going to lose over time. If you add to that the fact that they have inherent limitations because of the sensor size, uh, I think if they keep trying to compete, uh, you know, head to head against the bigger guys, I don't see I don't see them succeeding, to be honest. So I understand why Kai was making that point, and I think he was hinting at, at something like this. You know, I don't think you're wrong because I, I, I don't like you. You said you're more critical than we are, and I, I think we're actually more on the same page than not but um i wanted to to go back to one aspect which is which is size um and how it relates to a pro market because while i agree with you that i think olympus especially with the pen f um they seem to have priced themselves into a very strange corner uh with that camera in particular but i feel like there's a spot for them in the professional market especially i'm thinking of wildlife photography now as a wildlife photographer the ability to have good image quality in a body that allows you to actually go into these tight, difficult shooting conditions, um, get the equivalent, like, um, the equivalent field of view of, you know, a 600 millimeter lens, for instance, uh, in a much smaller, um, size than you would with an APS-C body or with a full frame body and be able to have the autofocus performance that, you know, I think Olympus is still, a market leader in um, this is this is a, a tremendous advantage. I mean that those factors in and of themselves are enough to sway a decision in favor of an Olympus camera as a wildlife photographer, even in a professional context. Um, and I, you know I wouldn't discount that. Now whether or not they're actually um, presenting themselves in that way to the market is a different story. But I, I do think there's a spot for them professionally. Um, but what you said about volume, I think, is where that all falls apart, because you're right. Ultimately, even though that may be true, and even though that's an area that they can capitalize on, that alone is not going to be enough to sustain the breadth of their business. And and that's where I think they need to have a very long, hard look at their camera lineup and decide, okay, how how can we balance this um, to to keep ourselves afloat while also... Um, moving the technology forward and and trying to provide value to people on either end of the experience spectrum. 
Right. And that's a very, it's a very tough call to make because every company understandably wants to be the, the you know, the company that makes gr great products and that releases, you know, super nice high-end cameras. But sadly, there's not enough room in the market, I think, for all these companies to do the same thing, essentially, and compete in the same uh, price segments and, and releasing what are essentially very similar products. So uh, if I had to choose, you know, at the same price point, the same features, uh, if I had to spend, I don't know, $500, including body and lens, or maybe even up to $1,000, there's a very good case that a, a Micro Four Thirds camera might be you know, the, the, the best alternative, the best choice. But if I'm spending $2,000, I don't see myself buying a Micro Four Thirds camera today. And I don't see myself buying it in the future either. That's that's why I'm having, you know, some trouble imagining the future for them and what they must be thinking internally in terms of how they plan to position themselves in the market. Right. And that is a difficult struggle. And I think, I think what might be... Um a saving grace for them is uh, is going back to what you were saying about the quality of sensors improving and the fact that over time, high ISO performance and other factors that are tied directly to the sensor itself um, will evolve. And it may come to a point where um, the raw performance of the micro four thirds sensor size might, might obviate some of the um, problems that it currently faces when compared to a full-frame sensor. And again, in combination with the fact that it has a clear size advantage, which will always be the case, because that's one thing that, that just can't change because of the physics of, of uh, uh, building lenses and things like that. So they'll always have a size advantage, but as long as they can combine that size and weight advantage with some of these other technological factors, I, I do think that they, they can build a future. It's just... Um, like you're saying right now, we may not be seeing very much evidence of that. And if you were to give me a $1,000 budget and say, okay, build a camera system for general usage. Um, yeah, it's difficult. Once the, once the budget goes above there, it becomes harder and harder to justify spending it on a micro four thirds system. So if you guys, uh, Marius earlier, you talked about the sensor shifting technology and found in the M5 Mark II and now found in the Pen F, correct? You can get 50 megapixel images out of the, the Pen F. I believe so, yeah. Right. I, I have the M5 Mark II. Uh, you have to use that mode on a tripod because um, when that sensor moves, it takes up, I don't know, it takes a little longer, like a full second uh, to do that. And anyway, if there's any movement in the image, um, it kind of throws it off. So it's only good for like landscapes or, um, you know, still life photography. And therefore, even though I have an EM5 Mark II, I never, I, don't, I never use that, that image, uh, sorry, the, that option. Um, but the thought came about somewhere, I was reading online somewhere, uh, where they were thinking that they might be able to get rid of the, the tripod limitation with that. Uh, on the EM1 Mark II. So they would be able to input a 20 megapixel micro four thirds sensor into the EM1 Mark II, get rid of that tripod limitation, and you could just shoot, you know, um, free handed and still have a 50 megapixel image. Now, Alvaro, my question to you would be, does that change anything in your argument that um, they might be able to push megapixel or sorry, resolution, in, like catastrophic, not catastrophically, extremely high, um, and then they would be able to have a lower price still be, or and smaller bodies and lighter lenses and so on. Right. It would make life better for Micro Four Thirds uh, shooters, no doubt. But I think it would be just a matter of time before the rest of the industry copied that feature. 
and probably they're hard at work on it already especially perhaps sony that since they they also they already have the in-body image stabilization and that's what's needed for the sensor to move that's what olympus is using the the in-body image stabilization system to shift the sensor vertically and horizontally to capture uh, you know uh, the same image but slightly shifted physically to get a higher res picture that's what they're doing and if I had to guess, I would say that Sony, because they already have way there, would be the the company that would have a, an easier time copying that feature. And I don't see why they wouldn't do it. So it's like only a matter of time. Yeah, once that becomes standard across systems, you would have the same the same argument all over again. Because the problem is, based on X amount of dollars that you spend, what are you getting in return? And uh, yeah, it might be... Uh, you know, a nice advantage for from now until a couple of years from now. I don't know how long it will take others to copy the feature, but I can imagine. I can't imagine them not doing not doing it. Right, and sh- and shifting a or shifting a forty three megapixel sensor on an A seven R two that creates a gigantic like two hundred megapixel image. I guess right. Right. Well, maybe you could get away with shifting uh, fewer times. Yeah. Right. Right. So if we, if someone walked up to you and said, I've got a thousand dollars to spend, um, are you recommending a micro four thirds camera or something else? And then let's throw that out there and say $2,000. Are you, you're not recommending micro four thirds. That's pretty clear, but are you still recommending it for a thousand dollar budget? I don't have a clear answer to that because it would depend on the person asking. Right. Okay. Good point. Good point. Right. To me, it would massively depend on whether they see themselves, you know, evolving and getting more serious about photography as time goes on. And also how important are ergonomics to them, you know, because like Marius mentioned on a previous episode, uh, some APS-C cameras like Sony, for example, uh, they are just not that great ergonomically. And that's an area where Olympus has traditionally always been excellent. I love, I love my Olympus camera and uh, I'm having a hard time letting go of it because it's super nice to shoot with. And that's an area that I think they've nailed. And a very valid reason for, you know, a person that doesn't have very advanced technical needs to to choose that system over another. So I don't see why not. I, I would be I would be comfortable recommending a micro four thirds camera, yes, but like I said, maybe the limit for me would be do you want to spend uh, ten, fifteen hundred dollars to build an entire system, not just the camera. And if that's the case, then yeah, why not? But once you start getting into spending over a thousand dollars just for the camera body, and then you know from five hundred to a thousand or even more for each lens, I just I, I I don't I wouldn't feel I wouldn't feel I would be doing them a favor by recommending them a Micro Four Thirds camera. To be honest, Marius, do you agree with Alvaro? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's uh, the the core of the problem is who's asking the question, right? Who are we recommending this to? Because I have I've recommended a lot of Sony cameras, I've recommended a lot of Olympus cameras, and it it often depends on the trajectory that you see for the person. Because you know, some people, uh, and not only that, but uh, Alvaro, you actually 
brought something up that that I we didn't even touch on, but I think is actually a, a very important factor, which is the ergonomics of shooting with these cameras. And frankly, that's something that some people are willing to pay great money for, um, and and it informs their purchasing decision a great deal because ultimately this is a tool that you're using day in day out to make images. And if it's not comfortable, then that's a problem, right? And if it's uh, you know, if you're choosing between systems, um, the the way that you feel when shooting with it and the the comfort is is a huge factor. And I know that for me, that's that's a particularly important factor because I find myself not shooting with cameras that uh, are not comfortable to shoot with, even though they might be, you know, technically superior on paper. And that was the exact problem that I ran into with the Sony A A6000, um, which is a magnificent camera, but again, because of the ergonomic incompatibility let's say with uh, with my hands and with my preferences it was one that i just was not happy shooting with whereas my em10 you know the first gen em10 um that was with me all the time um even though on paper it's a much worse camera so it, it's a difficult it's a difficult question and i don't know that money is necessarily the determining factor or the most important determining factor um, to my recommendation because Again, it's it's going to depend, and a lot of people. Uh, let's not forget when they buy a camera to upgrade from their smartphone, they're not really buying it with a view to develop a system and eventually build it out into you know a, a huge bag full of gear. It's it's very often the camera and the kit lens that they get is is it. You know that's as far as they go, and it's as far as they want to go, which is fine. And you have to keep that in mind as well. I think when when recommending to people because you can't, you know, I can't recommend you a camera on the off chance that you may go and purchase better glass and better, you know, blah, blah, blah for it down the road. I mean, I have to, it's, it's worth taking into account their actual desires and whether or not they have any ambition to, to take it further, because for some people it's just not practical. And I think that's, that's why it's cameras like the Sony RX 100 series are so popular because you get this, this pocketable camera that's a meaningful upgrade over your smartphone, but it's still really straightforward to shoot with, and you don't feel like you have to build this entire system of lenses to take good pictures. No, but you made a you made a very interesting point, and it is that uh, we're not even considering, you know, those users for whom an interchangeable lens camera might not be the best choice. And there's a there are a lot of people for whom that's the case that you know that they would be happier with an RX100 camera or with a Fuji X100T or any number of cameras that are, you know, that have a fixed lens, whether it's a, it's a prime lens or whether it's a zoom lens. But the fact that you have a kit that it's, uh, you know, indivisible, I think that's uh, a different proposition. And for many people, it might be the best way to go. Yeah, of course. I was just assuming that since we're talking about interchangeable lens systems, that we were already sort of in that ballpark and that profile of user. But yeah, it's an it's an excellent point. Yeah, right. And I guess I guess I was just trying to to make the point that it's not a bad thing that Olympus has these options available in that price range because there are I think enough consumers out there in the world for whom an Olympus camera is and for the foreseeable future will remain the best compromise of image quality, size, and growth potential. And and I think as long as they're smart about capitalizing on that, they do still have a promising future. It's just, you know, 
we, we worry a little bit when we see things like the Pen F and its pricing. Not because again, Pen F is is seems like a great camera, but we look at the price tag, and that's when you start asking questions like, okay, if I'm spending that much on the body, uh, what are my other options, and why would I pick this one? And so that's especially when that improved sensor isn't actually outputting better, you know, far better images than the M5 Mark II, right? Exactly, exactly. But, you know, setting aside that particular camera, um, I, I do think that the potential is there for them to continue having a very healthy and very meaningful position in the industry. So really all that remains to be seen is whether or not they will have the um, self-awareness and the willingness to act on that and to, um, you know, develop cameras accordingly. And speaking of interesting price tags, there's a lens in the Micro Four Thirds system that is infamous for being super expensive in relation to most other lenses for the system, but it's also incredibly high quality. And I'm talking about the Panasonic Leica Noctichron, which is a 42.5 millimeter lens uh, that roughly translates to an 85 millimeter field of view in the full frame terminology. And it has a super fast aperture of f1.2. And our good friend Josh here has been the proud owner of such a lens for a few months already. And I think this is a good opportunity for you to sort of elaborate a little bit on this whole theory and how using such a lens in the Micro Four Thirds system uh, works in the real world. Yeah, you know, that lens is, um, it's kind of like a dark horse, so to say. Um, It's like out way out there on the pricing side of things, but every single person who ever shoots with, with it says that it's one of the best lenses ever made. And I'm one of those people. Um, yeah, just, just sorry to cut you, but just for reference, because I didn't mention it, the lens, I believe, retails for about $1,500. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I, American, I believe. I, you can find it a little cheaper on eBay. Um, I bought it on eBay for, I think I paid, paid about $1,100 for it. Yeah, that's a very um, nice deal. It was a good deal, and that's why I bought it. I don't think I would ever recommend anybody buy it at, at the full price but um the long story short i guess is the fact that yeah like it's an expensive lens but it it equates to being the very best image quality um most people would argue it's the best image quality you can get um, out of a lens for the micro four thirds format and um i right for the you know for the last six months or so it's i haven't had anything to compare compare it to um, but recently I had to switch over to the Sony system uh, because of a project and I fell in love with that 85 millimeter format or 85 millimeter field of view thanks to the Noctocron. So I had to go out and get an 85 millimeter lens for my Sony camera. And I, as soon as I bought the Sony camera, I pre-ordered these um, Zeiss Battis lenses that are, um, they were released, I think, last August. And everybody has them on pre-order and very few people people can get them and i was lucky enough to finally they they arrived um 7 or 8 weeks after i purchased the or after i pre-ordered them so i for the last 2 weeks i've been able to actually compare the two the noctocron and the zeiss Battis 85 mm it's an f18 lens um but it's very highly regarded as well uh up until very recently it was the best 85 mm lens you could buy for the full frame sony e-mount system so um yeah, it's been a fun two weeks to say the least, Alvaro. And I, I'm ending up early on when we were chatting about the Noctocron. I always felt that you were being hard on it, um, but I think I now understand where you're coming from, especially on the price front, um, because although the image quality is simply outstanding, um, it's sharp from f1 to right to the um, at every aperture. The Noctocron is sharp, 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 sharp. 
Um, it has really good ergonomics, like it's small, but it's heavier. Um, it's got, it feels good in the hand. It focuses extremely fast. Uh, my first um, impression of any of those Panasonic Leica lenses with an Olympus camera was uh, with the 25 millimeter Summilux, which is one of the first very popular um, higher grade lenses for the Micro Four Thirds system. Uh, do you guys know when that was released, that lens? I think it was in 2012 or something like that. Right. And like, it is a phenomenal lens. It's an F1.4 lens, um, so it can blur the background out uh, better than the majority of Micro Four Thirds lenses. Yeah, that was it was actually the first F1.4 lens right. the system, the first time that we had a, an, you know, an actually fast lens right. for the system. So it was big yeah, news. Yeah, and uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic lens. It truly is. Um, it's a little softer, uh, wide open at F1.4, but... Um, it, it really is fantastic. Now, I'm not sure if, if it was just my model, the one that I was that I purchased, um, but it was like it had a clicky sound when I autofocused. Alvaro, does yours have the same? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I, so like it's slower to auto, like it's faster than say the um, venerable, that 20 millimeter Panasonic, it's like a pancake lens, um, the 20 millimeter F1.7, I believe. That one was phenomenal lens, but very slow to focus. And the 25 millimeter Semilux f1.4 lens was a faster to focus, but still not like, you know, knock it out of the park, so to say. But the Noctocron came along for me and just blew both out of the water, um, blew the at f1.2. It was super sharp. It blew the background out so beautifully. Um, so like all of that on the image quality side, I've, all, I've never felt like I wasted my money. Um, for an eleven hundred dollar prime lens for the Micro Four Thirds system, right? But this is a very, this is actually a very interesting comparison because it's exactly what we were talking about. We're talking about two different systems, in fact, as as different as they could be, right? Practically, right? Because we have, on one hand, we have a Micro Four Thirds lens, uh, and on the other hand, it's a full frame lens, and they're both roughly equivalent. I mean, the the Noctocron is a bit faster in terms of in terms of raw aperture numbers, but in terms of depth of field, the advantage actually goes over to the bodies, because once you take into account the crop factor, the bodies will be able to produce a shallower depth of field. So I'm just curious to see, now that you've had some time to play with both, um, how have you found uh, that relationship? How, how you, which one have you found to be more uh, practical or easier to use, you know, in a real world setting? And see, this is why, like, I still sit on the fence on, on, you know, saying whether or not the Noctocron is worth the money. Um, because, like, I think when I look at my current kit, if I could keep any lens that I, you know, if I could keep the Noctocron, it would be the one that I would keep. Because it it's, um, it's a little faster to focus, I find, than the baddest lens. Um I like the way it feels. I think it's denser. Uh, everything about about that lens, that Noctocron, it's got such a personality to it. But having said that, though, um, we're talking about two lenses here for two different systems. Yes, but they're the same price. In fact, the Battis is cheaper. Um, believe it or not, the Battis is uh, weatherproofed or weather sealed, so you can take that outside in colder temperatures or in you know misty weather or rainy conditions. The Noctocron, you can't. Um, the Battis comes with the latest and greatest OLED screen on the top, which actually, believe it or not, guys, I find surprisingly helpful, um, especially on the 25 millimeter Battis lens that uh, for manual focusing. Wow, it's really good. 
I always wondered how useful that is in practice. I mean, it looks great and it's it's a very cool thing uh, theoretically, but I, I never really had a good sense of how useful it turns out to be in practice. So hearing that you like it is... I think it's a great take on the whole depth of field scale concept because it, instead of showing you the traditional depth of field uh, scale, you know, in relation to the aperture number, it straight up shows you the the amount of uh, focal plane that is in, in focus. You know, it's, it actually says it's in focus from two meters to five meters. So it's it's immediate. You don't have to do any guesswork to interpret the result. Yeah. Right. You can look down, spin the ring a little bit. And if you're walking down the street, you know, anything that's two meters in front of you is going to be in focus. I love that. I think that's really handy. Um, and the Noctocron doesn't have that. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense. Um, it's not as helpful on the on the baddest 85 millimeter, to be honest with you, but regardless, it is nice to have. Um, so, you know, I, I shot a little bit with both of them this morning, actually, and I just to do try to compare them more. Um, and each lens has its benefits, um, but I realize now I think that the bad is considering the price. That's the big kicker here, I think. Um, considering the price, the Battis is just, it's a better lens. You get um, you get the same, it's a, it's a little softer, uh, wide open. They've got different apertures, so it's a little bit tough to compare them exactly. Um, but it's a little softer, wide open, uh, but the background blurs out better. Um, there's just as much character in the Zeiss Battis 85mm as there is in the Noctocron. Uh, there's a big, not a big discussion, but there's a discussion going on right now about the new Sony um, G Master lens, the 85mm f1.4. Lots of people are reviewing it now. Uh, it hasn't been released out in the wild, but reviewers have had a chance to do some tests. And they say that there's a lot of, there's more character in the Battis's um, background blur than there is in the G Master's background blur, but the G Master's is smoother and creamier and softer and so on. So, you know, it depends on what you're looking for. I found that the Noctocron on the Micro Four Thirds system had a lot of character to it. The color of that lens that it created straight out of the camera was beautiful. Um, it's got kind of that Leica look, as close as you can get to that Leica look outside of the Leica system that there is. Um, but the Battis has its own character uh, of its own. You know, the, the backgrounds swirl a little bit. You get those like football type cat's eye shapes on the outside of um, when you have those bokeh balls. Um, so, you know, on that front, the character of the lenses are on equal footing. Um, the pricing of the lenses, if you just put them on a on a scale of price-wise, they're basically the same there. So it comes down to format for the most part. And um, in that case, the, the, the Battis comes out ahead because it has a shallower depth of field that you can play around with. So, uh, yeah, I although I, I think I do agree with you that the Noctocron is... Um, it's overpriced. I, I will flat out put my foot down and say that it's overpriced. However, the fact that you can get it for $900 to $1,000 on eBay, yep, it's not weather sealed, but I still would recommend it because it, it really, truly is a phenomenal lens. Right. All right, Josh, let's do some math here. I'm going to ask you a question, but we need to we need to work this out first. So how much did you spend on the Battis? Because I think Henry's new price is like almost $1,800. So Yes, and I got it. I pre-ordered it at the older price before a foreign exchange kicked in. So I got it for 1600 Canadian. So it's it'll be it'll be 1200 for the EM1. It'll be 1500 for the Noctocron. Um, and then on the A7 two not the r2 the a72 that's retails for two thousand dollars 
and uh, the baddest 85 retails for, I believe, 1600 Let me just double check. Yeah, and I think, like you said, it went up now recently, so it's like 1850 or something. Yeah, so the the current one, yeah, it's it's seventeen fifty nine at Henry's right now. So um, let's say seventeen hundred, just cause. So now we're looking at a difference of a thousand dollars. Yep, just about between them. Right. Yeah. So so that's again, and this this fluctuates with used versus not. But uh, you know, as some as someone who might be considering this kind of thing, do you think that there's a one thousand dollar difference in the shooting envelope, in the image quality, in the ergonomics, in you know whatever factors you care to address between the two systems? On the spot. Okay. Here we go. Um, the EM1 versus the A7 II. The EM1 has better ergonomics. Uh, I would say far and away. So in order to equate the ergonomics, you're going to have to buy the vertical battery grip for the A7 II, which makes that option more expensive. Um, the Noctocron versus the Battis. The Battis is the better lens, more just slightly more expensive, but it's the better lens. Um, the difference in image quality, ergonomics. I, I think if you're looking at, at camera systems at this range, um, on in this end of the price scale, I think you're shooting yourself in the foot by buying the EM1 with the Noctocron because I don't believe that the Noctocron will be surpassed in image quality in the Micro Four Thirds system anytime soon. I think you're buying the best of the very best in the Micro Four Thirds system at that price. And as we've seen already, the baddest lens can be surpassed. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the 85 millimeter G Master that just came out will be surpassed because Sony's level of R&D there, the size of the company, the just the relative youth of that full frame mirrorless system. Um, I think that there's more of a future there. So a thousand dollars spent. Um, if you need the very best image quality and you only have, I shouldn't say only, but you have $2,700 or so, then yeah, the M1 and the Noctocron, fantastic buy. I promise that you will not be disappointed whatsoever. Um, but at this end of the range, like if you're, if you've got the $2,700 and another thousand isn't an issue, I'd I don't know. I, I think the A7 II and the baddest lens are, um, I, ugh, I'm i like here grimacing and like clenching my teeth and not wanting to say it, but I, I think they are a better option. Well, I mean, obviously I'm asking you an unfair and difficult question, but I'm, I'm just asking it because at some point you can boil it down to a question like that and, and just try and make a judgment call. And, and it sounds to me like ultimately what it comes down to in your case and for your particular shooting needs is um, almost a degree of future proofing. So it's not so much about a limit in current capabilities. It's more about, okay, if you're making a $2,700 investment, you want it to be building towards a system that you can continue to invest in over time. And uh, yeah, so that's that's an interesting perspective. And I, I think that is exactly the perspective that Olympus has to find a way to um, address if they're going to remain competitive on this level in the professional market, or as Alvaro is saying, they just bow out of that level of the market and just find a different niche and, or a different zone that they can cover better than anyone else. Right, and just for reference, I'd like to add that the difference in American dollars between both uh, both setups is roughly 600 American dollars, judging by the prices on amazon.com right now. And that's non-used, right? That's brand new. That's Yeah, that's brand new. So it's 2300 for the EM1 plus the Noctocron and 2900 for the A7 II plus the Badis. I didn't, I forgot to add this, Marius, but the other kicker is that weather sealing. Uh, 
you're buying a $1,500 Noctocron lens. Yeah, you're getting incredible image quality, incredible speed on the aperture side, but the fact that it isn't weather sealed is mind boggling. Yeah. There's also the resolution factor as well, because you're getting, you know, 16 megapixels on one end and 24 on the other. Yeah, that's right. And that that's a camera thing, I think, but like lens to lens, the fact that uh, like the baddest actually has weather sealing, I think, whereas even Sony's new G Master lens is only weather resistant, I think is what they're, you know, billing it as. Yeah, but I think that's just the way each company, you know, labels their weatherproofing technology. Oh, okay. I've been told, like, from what I was reading, there was a difference. Like, they actually say the baddest can withstand a bit more. I get that I, that impression as well whenever I read, you know, Mirror Lessons or any of those those sites that just that every time they review a Sony lens, they say it's weather resistant as opposed to being fully weatherproofed. Okay. And I, I'm sure it's just, you know, for PR reasons that Sony doesn't want to commit to saying that they are fully weatherproofed. Oh, liability. Okay, that could be. Regardless, like the fact that the Noctocron purely flat out isn't. Um, I don't know. In our Canadian winters, uh, like it, we've been lucky. It's been mild. In fact, it's you know I live in southern Manitoba, and it is currently like three degrees outside at the end of February. Something's wrong. <laughs> um, it's beautiful, but like for the most part, for the last three to four months, I haven't like by definition, I'm not allowed to take the Noctocron outside because that would you know I could damage my investment. The baddest. I can just fire away. So, uh, you know, that is something to think about as well um, for depending on like where you live and so on. But it's something I continuously think about. Uh, I'm always worried about taking my stuff outside because of the cold and the baddest, like I don't have to think twice. Um, But the Noctocron, I don't, I do not understand how they don't have weather sealing in there. Right. And generally speaking, these things are a lot more resistant than the companies would have you believe. That's right. So I've, I'm convinced that you could perfectly take the Noctocron out right now and it it would be okay. But yeah, you, the point is the company is not, uh, you know, committing to to that. So if you if you do it and the lens breaks, yeah, you're on your own. So that's unfortunate. Right. So yeah, I'm not sure if I've properly answered either of you know marius's question or or alvaro's questions regarding these two lenses it's like we're talking we're kind of comparing apples to oranges kind of maybe like different kinds of apples maybe (laughs) Um, we are definitely like you know there it's a tough comparison but um to put me on the spot yeah i think money is better spent in the sony system and the baddest lens if you can get your hands on it personally i i have to agree with that and uh, having, well, I currently own both uh, an Olympus body and a Sony body. And personally, the choice I've made is to bet on the Sony system, you know, for the long term. So, yeah, I I think, like Josh said, it's a more future-proof investment. And I think the, the an even more difficult option, if you do go to the, the, the baddest system, this will be a discussion for another day, but we've already touched on it, but that G Master lens versus the, the you know, the, we've got a, there's going to be a lot of these kind of discussions going forward is, are, are, is this lens worth, you know, the extra dollars in terms of image quality? And I think that that will be one issue with the Sony system going forward is that you've constantly got these new bombardment of new equipment. And you can always rest easy that the Noctocron is the very best that you can buy for the Micro Four Thirds system. Um, nobody has surpassed it, and I just don't see anybody to, being able to surpass it. Right. Well, and if you're talking about 
you know, upgrading within the same system, the conversation is a lot easier because there are other factors that are just eliminated from the equation. But it's always harder when we're comparing across different systems because we were talking earlier and when we said it, we were talking about a thousand Canadian dollar difference. But we can't really attribute that difference solely to the lens. I mean, there are a lot of other factors that change from one to the other, right? So there's, there's, it's a more, it's a more complex situation to address. And yeah, we get it that it, that it wasn't really a, an easy question to answer, but, but I think you, you did a great job because. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Pat on the head. Well, that's what we're here for. Marius, any thoughts? I think you answered the question very well too. No, I'm just oh, kidding. <laughs> oh, now I'm blushing. <laughs> uh, no, no. I, the, the, the only reason that I put you on the spot that way is is to um, basically to illustrate that that it's a, it's a complicated question, um, but it is it is one that I think on some level people will be asking themselves. And there's there's also that matter of like ultimately if you look at a well shot photo from one system and a well shot photo from the other in the usual viewing context, which for most people is on a screen on their computer. Um, you know, blind test, can you tell which is which? Um, and that's, that's kind of where it becomes very difficult. And it, it, to me, I always found that helps me keep things grounded when I, you know, when, when gear acquisition syndrome gets very severe, um, I always try and bring it back to the very practical, um, consideration of whether or not I would be able to tell the difference, um, in a blind test. And if that answer is no, then I probably have more important things to worry about. Right, I absolutely agree. Right, there was like a, an article like on was it the fl- fl- uh, the fablographer recently about like the Canon uh, comparing the Canon lenses, right? I saw one article like that, and maybe that's the one you you're talking about, but it was on light and matter. Oh, on, my fault. Not my on fault. the fablographer. Okay. Yeah, it was comparing the Canon fifty millimeter f one point two, the Canon fifty millimeter f one point four, and the Sigma fifty millimeter f one point four art. That's right. Okay, and it was a blind test. You could pick whichever one you you thought was each lens and uh, and it's it's eye-opening because it's you're gonna if you try this test i promise you you're gonna guess wrong more often than you than you guess right and that goes to show that the differences in the real world really aren't that significant most of the time so cool cool and now that we're done with follow-up uh, to get on with the real show <laughs> what should we talk about now <laughs> oh. uh, are we gonna do i i hope we don't end up with like the follow-up section being longer than the main section of the show that's gonna be difficult um so far we've been i i have to say we've been uh, lucky because the follow-up or the the feedback that we've gotten is is fairly positive and is you know is encouraging it's not been like oh my god you guys are wrong and blah 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 so so far we're we're safe having said that i bet that this this particular episode with the uh sensor size discussion invites um a lot of discussion so we'll we'll see um but feel free to send us our thoughts your thoughts yeah of course yeah we we welcome your thoughts we've got an email address at uh, hello at candid.fm please send us your your feedback we we really like receiving it um we've been I think thrilled by the response that um, we've seen so far, and uh, thank you very much to those of you who have gone onto iTunes and left us a rating or even a review. Um, it really helps us out, and uh, obviously doing the same on on Overcast or whatever your podcatcher of choice is um, makes a big difference, makes us smile, and we're always sharing these things. Um, one of the questions that I wanted to put out to our listeners, um, we got a suggestion. 
that uh, that we've been considering, which is to open up our Slack discussion. We have a we run a little Slack system behind the scenes to to chat about things, and uh, we were asked if we might consider opening that up to the public to have a little candid community going on there. Um, so if that's something that you might be interested in, or if you would prefer it to be a Flickr group or something like that, um, let us know. Send us an email. Leave us a comment. Do what you will. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll consider it. Yeah, don't be shy. Send us your love or your criticism. It's all good. <laughs>